This is Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development, all about change in Appalachia. What change has happened, what change is happening, and what change still needs to happen. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison, founder and CEO of Coalfield Development. Really excited this week to have Robert Thompson, who's a Wayne County commissioner and also a Wayne County author who's written extensively about Wayne County, West Virginia history. So, Robert, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So were you born and raised in Wayne County? I was, yeah. I've lived here my entire life. I uh, grew up at East Lynn and or outside East Lynn on Big Glen Creek. You mentioned that I, uh, I write about local history and the fact that my family lived here for over a century, it always interested me that, you know, my family was from this area and that's kind of what got me interested in family history. And I kind of branched out from there into the communities that they lived in. I grew up, like I said, until uh, I graduated from college at East Lynn, lived in Westmoreland for a while. And now I've been in Wayne, in the town of Wayne for eight years. So I've, I've kind of experienced and lived in a little bit of every place in the county. So. Tell the, the listeners about Big Lynn Creek. Well, it's a very rural area. You could probably substitute it for any community of its size and general description in the state, and you would feel pretty much at home. Just some basic farmland, little small country plots, um, you know, small homes, mobile homes, barns, you know, the normal the normal standard little two-lane road. Pretty standard fare for West Virginia, I imagine. And also near a big lake, which is also not abnormal in, in West Virginia. You know, that was one thing we did a lot when I was small is ATV ride on the on the Eastland Lake property, which we probably weren't supposed to be doing. But uh, my family's farm bordered the, the Corps of Engineers property. So in a way, it was almost like we had an, an additional 8,000 acres of uh, empty forest uh on adjoining our farm. So that was kind of, kind of unique, I imagine. Pretty great place to grow up. Yes, definitely. I've sort of heard a lot of resentment from some folks about the lakes, sort of how that went down of buying up the properties and folks feeling like maybe they didn't get fair prices. Did, would, did you hear any of that growing up or? I've heard that and I don't, I, I can't speak to whether or not the prices were fair, but I think it had more to do with the fact that, you know, these people, this was family farms that had been in the in the families for generations, you know, since the early 1800s in some cases. And I don't know that there was any monetary amount that would have seemed fair that could, you know, could pay for that sort of uh, historical background. So I think I would imagine that that probably had more to do with with it actually losing the family farms and their communities than it did uh, being compensated. That's just my that would be that would be my impression, having talked to these people and kind of grown up in that area. So. So then you went to Marshall University uh, for college. Is that right? Yes. Kennedy uh, Eastland Elementary, Wayne High School and then Marshall University. I started out in engineering um, and then switched to education, uh, went through social studies education, got my bachelor, my bachelor's degree in that. And I've been a teacher in Wayne County since 2011 now, so a decade. It flies by. It's amazing how quick how quick it goes. Yeah. So you're still a teacher and a commissioner right now. I am. Yes. Yes. Teaching has that been has that been about what you expected? Harder than you expected? What What's it like to be a teacher in West Virginia? Well, de- definitely harder than I expected. I mean, there's. I imagine with many careers, you don't really you don't really know exactly how it's going to work. You get out and start doing it, and no matter how well you're pre- prepared in training, to you actually hit the ground and experience it day to day, you don't realize how difficult something is. Um, but I, I would say that I definitely enjoy it. Um, you know, like, as you said, I, I write, I'm a county commissioner, served in the house of delegates, but 
I would consider myself a teacher above, you know, if somebody asked me what I do, I, I tell them I'm a teacher. That's my, uh, that's kind of my, my main focus. I would, I would say. Were you a delegate during the teacher strikes? I was. Yes. What was that like? I mean, did you feel a little bit torn between two worlds there? Or, I mean, I imagine you were representing teacher interests um, as a delegate. I, I just, I, it must have been amazing to be in that capital during that time. It was, and I, I definitely wasn't torn. Um, as you said, I, I did my best to um, put the interests of the teachers and students to the forefront. I think I did that. I have no reservations of how I voted on anything. I really think that I, I, I put my full effort into that. But I, it was interesting. It was, as you said, it was an amazing time to get to see both sides of it because I you know before the sessions would start I would go out talk to people from all over the state and we had teachers from Wayne County up there every every day and from all the different schools so I would get to see them and experience it from their side from that side on the outside and then to get to sit inside the chamber and actually participate on you know and voting on the bills and working on the bills and hear the chanting on the outside it was a truly remarkable experience one that I'll never forget from inside the chamber you could still hear the chanting oh yes yeah and there were there are like two sets of doors you've got an outer set of doors an inner set of doors and then there's then there are two big security sliding doors that they have that they shut and it was so loud at some points uh, that, you know, you could, it was hard to actually hear what was going on on the floor. And for the, the delegates that weren't necessarily as friendly to the teachers, it was, you could tell it was very frustrating to them. From my perspective, I, I, I enjoyed it, but just, just to be able to see this, you know, democracy in action, they finally on, on a couple of occasions had to shut the outside security doors to just help block out some of the sound. I, I enjoyed it. And I, you know, I think we, we stopped, quite a bit of bad stuff coming down the pipe back then. So, so you, uh, you started teaching in, in 2011. When did you start writing? Well, I actually started writing in probably in high school. Actually, I started, I, I started doing family history, genealogy when I was in middle school. I remember sitting in my great grandma's floor and trying to write out a, just on notebook paper, a little family tree and asking her, you know, her parents' names and birth dates and things like that. When I was in middle school, I had several teachers that really, uh, helped get me interest, interested in family history and helped me point me in the right direction. And uh, they got me in contact with the Wayne County Genealogical and Historical Society. And uh, they showed me the right way to do things and the charts and all that. And by the time I got into high school, I had the bulk of my family tree completed, or at, well, as much as you could complete it. When I was in high school, I started to branch out into local history. And what got me started on that, as I said, I, I grew up near East Lynn. At the time I was growing up, still today, there's not much there. You know, just there, there are very few businesses. I had seen pictures that my grandparents had of East Lynn in the 40s and 50s of these big buildings along the streets. You know, it looked like a little wild west town. Uh, with boardwalks and everything else. And uh, driving through when I was a kid, there was nothing there, nothing like that. And it just fascinated me how you could go have that much change in, you know, a 50 year period. I started researching it and kind of went from there. After I got done with researching East Lynn, I moved on to the town of Wayne and then just have so slowly branched out into different areas of the county's history. How, how many books have you written now? 18. So you are, Robert, you're a full-time teacher, uh, county commissioner, and you've also written 18 books. And, and you're how old, if you don't mind my asking? I'm 33. That is incredible. How how do you do that, for lack of a more artful question? I mean, do you carve out a little bit of time every day to work on writing, or does it come in big bursts? Honestly, the writing, that I, I can say that's like my, my hobby. So if when I have free time, when I'm not working on lesson plans or doing something 
related to the county commission, the writing and research is my hobby. That's what I do for fun, which probably would would be a surprise to people that that's what you do for fun. But that is for me. So <laughs> Yeah, that wouldn't be the number one thing most people would list. That's incredible. And what's the next book? I'm actually I'm, I'm finishing up one on uh, Laban Walker. There was a back in 1879. He was the only person ever executed in Wayne County. And he was hanged on the courthouse lawn here in the town of Wayne. And he was 18 years old. So it's kind of been it's as a teacher, it's it's strange that you can kind of make these connections because as a teacher, you know, with so many negative things going on in our community with drugs and things like that, you can see connections over a 140 year period of history about how, you know, a young person like that, a kid can get in so much trouble so easily. And, uh, you know, it really hits home when you when you have that that teaching background. So that that's my next project. Wow. What was he hanged for? Murder. He killed a saloon keeper on Virginia Point down um, outside well, where Canova is now, basically. Wow. I, I uh, honestly, I can't wait to read that. Um, what was your favorite book to write? Well, probably my first one, Eastland Booming. And I actually just, I just redid it within the last couple of weeks. I finished it and, and republished it. Uh, but Eastland Booming was about my hometown. It's the first one I started on. When I first did it, I was planning on just doing like a newspaper article. As I went, I found enough information to turn it into a book. Of course, so with anything, the more you do it, the more experience you get and you find access to more information and new processes and things like that. So over the past 14 years, I published that book in 20 or 2007. And since then, over the last 14 years, I found, you know, when I would be researching another topic, I found a lot more information about East Lynn as well. So I've continued to collect that information. And I recently did a completed a revised version of that book. Has anything about Wayne County history really surprised you? Or is it more a deepening, just a deepening of your of your understanding? Like as you being from here and of here, does it all sort of make sense and add up or, or are there some surprises that you can't quite wrap your head around yet? I think, you know, anytime you find a, an interesting historical fact or event that you, you didn't know, I mean, that that's that's kind of a surprise. It, it's remarkable in a way how the culture has remained the same. Obviously, you can't go back and talk to the people that lived it, but based on the sources that you find, the the letters, the um, newspaper articles, things like that. It appears to me that the culture is not that much different than it would have been 150 years ago. As, as, as far as the mindsets of the people, the passion that they feel for their families, religion, things like that. Uh, the cultural aspects of it have not changed that much in many ways. How would you describe the culture of, of Wayne County, West Virginia? People really care about their families. They care about uh, their churches, their communities. Well, I'll say there's kind of a dichotomy there. You have, I think, unfortunately, you've got a lot of people that do care care about those things. But then you have, I think apathy, unfortunately, has is a, has had a major impact on our, on our society in our area from litter to you know, the way people upkeep their homes and properties and things like that. And uh, I think that's become one of the biggest negative factors. So that would be one of the negative changes you've seen in Wayne County's history. And of course, this is a, a tough one, um, but what's caused that apathy? <laughs> that would be a good topic for a book if I could figure that one out, I'm sure. I really don't know. And I don't know that if we if that's, if that's common across the state or across the region. I know it doesn't seem like when you go to other parts of the state, whether it be the New River Gorge or the Eastern Panhandle, you don't see as much you know, you don't see as much trash beside the roads or the creeks jammed up with milk jugs and tires and things like that. And I don't know 
if they have a better way of just dealing with that or if the people have almost more pride in their communities and things like that. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You mentioned the title of your first book was East Lynn Booming. Was that boom? Was that, and, and I, I've read several of your books. I haven't read that one, uh, but I'm going to read the new one you mentioned. Is the boom, was that associated with the coal boom? Yes, it was. Um, definitely. Uh, East Lynn originally was just a little farming village, you know, like you would probably imagine on 12 Pole Creek. After the Civil War, timber uh, in along 12 Pole Creek and the Big Sandy, uh, that was kind of the first boom, I guess you would say. So timber had an impact for sure. But in the early 1900s, when they built the railroad out to East Lynn, that's when the coal industry took off. And at one point in 1917, there were 12 coal companies operating in East Lynn alone. So you, you had approximately 400 people. The town itself had about 400 people that lived there. And then the coal companies themselves employed 400 people in that one little town. So, I mean, that obviously that's bringing in people from the outside area as well. You had You had people... There were Polish immigrants and people from Alabama and Virginia all over that came to East Lynn just to work. And did it did the boom end because they mined it out and there was it no. what there was nothing left or what what caused the bust? <laughs> I guess the first bust kind of happened during the Great Depression, um, which you know coal, the coal industry declined throughout the 1920s and into the 1930s. Uh, East Lynn's or first boom kind of declined along with that. But starting in the late 30s and then through World War II, of course, as the coal industry came roaring back, the, the need for steel for the war effort, it came back with a you know a vengeance throughout the 1940s. And it's always been cyclical, for sure, the coal industry has. That second little boom lasted until the early 60s, probably. And then for the next 30, 25, 30 years, the coal industry kind of fluctuated. But from 1993 to 2015, you had... Rock Spring development up there, and they produce more coal than all the other coal mines probably in Eastland combined. The big difference was in the past, so even though you had this massive output from Rock Spring, you had the people that worked there came from all over the you know the county, the Kentucky, eastern Kentucky, so you didn't have to live right in the community to to work there. And as you had back in the early 1900s, it, the people, you know, you didn't, you couldn't drive 45 minutes to work. You had to live in the town. So it really made the community vibrant. It brought in a lot of money and people and businesses into the community itself. Is it fair to say like in the early days of the industry, it wasn't as, quite as extractive, whereas more modern times it, it's tied in with the bigger corporations and it, it more the money goes out of the community? I think that's probably a fair statement because most of the companies, well, I, I would say the actual operations, the day-to-day -day operations were managed in the early days by local people, you know, local people who formed the companies and managed the companies and things like that. The mineral rights, on the other hand, were typically still at that time owned by outside interests in, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, New York. So I, I still would think that a lot of the money went out. The profits probably went out in that way. But ancillary businesses, the you know the stores, the um, blacksmith shops, um, all those different necessary, the timber industry, even for example, I was actually talking to my grandfather yesterday. He's he's fairly sick and he's 88 years old. But he was talking about when he was 10 years old. He grew up at East Lynn, of course. He was talking about uh, his dad and grandfather timbering, and they would send the post. It was called post timber. And they would sell it to the mines to use to, you know, to prop up the roofs in these coal in these coal mines. So you had a lot of that extra business uh, just occurring in the community to support the coal industry that isn't really necessary, unfortunately, to a certain degree anyway. Because now it's a modern global supply chain. And that's that's fascinating. Wayne County's Civil War history. 
I've read some of your work on that, and I feel like Wayne County really was the epitome of a little bit of brother against brother, but also just the northern part of the county and the southern part of the county almost was split like two different counties, right? And I I wonder, for those who aren't from Wayne County in modern times, there's still this sort of split between folks in the northern part more towards Huntington and the folks in the southern part towards like Dunlow and Crum. It's like two different counties in a lot of ways. Do you feel like some of that goes back to that split still or am I reading too much into I think, it? I think it does. No, I think it does to, to a degree and I think it's more it's probably more complicated than saying, you know, at the time during the Civil War, you had the northern part of Wayne County and the southern part because you had it, the biggest union settlement in the county was actually in the Kaysville area, like southeastern right. Wayne County. Um, so it's, it's, it was, there were pockets, there were more pockets than there were anything else, but it was certainly heavily divided. I mean, as you said, there are multiple instances of brothers actually serving in on opposite sides during the war, families splitting between the different sides. And for many years after that, certainly into the 1930s, politics was heavily influenced by that. Speaking of the, like the union settlement in the Kaysville area, that region remained heavily Republican well up into the 1920s and 30s based on that ancestral unionism going back 70 years to the Civil War. So I'm sure some of that probably carries over to today. I don't know how much, though. Really interesting. And the the last book, I wish we could hit on it all 18, but we don't quite have time. You wrote a great book about the Wayne County Poor Farm, what was called the Poor Farm. And I wonder if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about that book. And, I, and specifically, I want to know, as we try and figure out how to help people come out of poverty, are there any takeaways from that book that you think might help us answer that question? The poor farm basically is where Wayne High School is today, if you're familiar with that. Of course, at the time, there was very little in any form of public assistance, um, you know, no, no food stamps or anything like that. Orphans or the elderly or mentally ill people. Uh, people who had no families, any person who could support themselves, in many cases, they, uh, for lack of a better word, sentenced them to the poor farm, the county farm. On this farm, they you, basically you were required to support your to, to work to your abilities. They would provide your food. They would provide your housing. And if you were capable of working, then you would actually do the work. You know, you would work in the fields or uh, raise the crops, things like that. Of course, some people were not capable of doing that. In some situations, they would actually assign indigent people to families around the county. The overseer of the poor would actually send people out and pay families a small amount of money to care for an elderly person or an orphan. And that was over time that slowly transitioned into the the county farm, where instead of sending them out in the county to some family, they would send them to the county farm instead. I think possibly there is some there would be some benefit to that that mindset that, you know, that you you give these people a little bit of pride, you know, they're, they're living there in, in, on the farm and certainly they're receiving benefit from the local government, but they're also, they're working and providing this, you know, they're growing these crops, they're putting the effort in, they're the ones hoeing the corn and picking the, the beans and stuff like that. So sure, they're getting some support, but they're also, they still have a little bit of sense of pride in the fact that they're doing it themselves as much as they can. Once you had the the New Deal and the Great Society, there just wasn't a need. Sort of the federal government became more responsible for helping to take care of the poor than local governments. Is that accurate? 
I, yeah, I think so. Eventually, of course, you had in different situations, you had, you know, for orphan children, you had, you know, uh, programs coming in like DHHR for uh, and for in child services for, to, to deal with those situations. Elderly people, you had systems like nursing home systems and things like that that kind of took over that role. You had mental hospitals and things like that for people who had mental mental illness. So you had these other avenues to support each of those groups of people. And eventually toward the end, as you mentioned there, federal and state assistance, they actually used the poor farm. Its last kind of iteration was just as a site to distribute commodity goods, uh, food to poor people throughout the county. I talked to many elderly people who, when they were children, used to, they would walk to the poor farm to pick up their government cheese or their, you know, their government ham, things like that. And by that point, there weren't any, any residents. They called them inmates, probably not a politically correct term for today, but, um, you know, there were no residents living there at that time other than just the overseer, but it was still used as kind of the central distribution point for um, government aid. And your research, you didn't find any mistreatment, but some other poor farms have been known for mistreatment of, of folks. Is that right? There were there are a few scattered, you know, cryptic phrases that there may have been some mistreatment early on. And like it was started in 1878 and lasted until 1959. When they, sold, when they sold it to the Board of Education, there were some uh, cryptic phrases that there might have been some mistreatment. Now, what that was, I don't know. I was just that there were some bad things going on. Phrases like that. You don't really know what that meant. Um, at a few different times, you would find uh, the county would send people down to investigate. And one particular time in the like 1917, 1918, they found that it was filthy. You know, the it was just filled with debris and broken furniture and things like that. Depending on who was overseer, which was a, a political appointee, depending on who was overseer of the farm at the time, uh, you know, it, it varied as far as the cleanliness and the, the general um, situation. So for modern times, you, you've spoken to some of the change that you've seen. You're a public servant, you know, a teacher, but also an elected official. Can you speak to why you made the decision to run for office and, and what some areas of, of focus are that you have as an elected official? Well, I'd always been interested in my community since I was a, a child. You know, I started ever since I started to realize, I guess, the impact the community's had on my family going back 200 years in some situation. I've always felt that I had a role or I, des I deserved to or I didn't deserve that the community deserved help from people who were invested in it and uh, people who it had supported and I felt like I was one of those people that my family had lived here for generations, that they had lived good lives in most situations, thankfully, and that they just, that I, I wanted to give back in some form. And I think that was probably the in addition to being interested in the history and wanting to see things, you know, us prosper based on you know the way we have in the past. And in many cases, that was those were the, some of the things that I wanted to uh, focus on once I got into uh, that's why I decided to get into public service. And so you first ran for delegate uh, what year? Uh, 2016. I served on the Wayne Town Council for three years prior to that and then ran for 
House of Delegates in 2016. So 2013. So you're coming up on, you've been a teacher 10 years and you'll be, have been an elected official for 10 years here soon. Are you feeling better about Wayne County's future or worse about Wayne County's future compared to when you started out? It's cyclical. (laughs) There will be times when I think, you know, we're right on the cusp of, you know, great things, whether it be things like the Beach Fork Lodge, you know, it's like right on it. We're right there. We're right there. And then now all of a sudden it's kind of the rugs pulled out from under us or like the Pritchard Intermodal facility over there you think man it's we're we're right on the verge of uh, it's getting ready to take off and then things just come to a screeching halt. So it depends on the situation. Sometimes I feel like we're going to, we're getting ready to break through and we're headed for prosperity and then something else will happen and uh, it'll just come to a screeching halt. And hopefully we can uh, keep the former up uh, going forward. What are you hoping will change over the next few years? What what needs to change that hasn't yet? Well, I, I hope some of the projects that have been worked on for decades now would finally come to fruition. Like the lodge, you know, unfortunately, I am not too optimistic about that. But, you know, we've worked on it. For listeners, there's a lake, a Beach Fork Lake, and from very grassroots Wayne County citizens have been advocating and fighting to build a lodge there as an economic development project literally for more than 30 years now. Mr. Fink, Mr. Stanley Fink is a legend in the community who, who had started this. He has a, a file. The governor had a, a ceremony a couple years back and they, they rolled in Mr. Fink's files um, that he'd been uh, fighting for this lodge and um, and it actually got funded, right? We thought it was going to happen and there's a ribbon cutting and everything. And then it, it still somehow it still hasn't happened. Well, we thought it was going to be funded multiple times. Back in the 1980s, uh, the House of Delegates passed a funding bill to build the lodge and the Senate killed it. So, I mean, and then most recently in 2015, I think it was, they had the ribbon cutting that it never, it never happened. I can't help but feel like we always keep getting these promises in Wayne County and they never actually happen. The four lane from Pritchard to Canova is another, you know, it's crucial for economic development in the Pritchard area. And we were promised these new this this new highway. If we went out and voted for the bonds, the road bond issue, I personally asked the governor if, if this was going to happen, if we supported it. And he said yes. And of course, here we are four years later and it still never happened. So frustrating. We sort of lamented earlier a sense of apathy or cynicism, you know, decades of broken promises that may just be what forms an apathetic citizenry. Absolutely. I think that's definitely part of it. When you, you're you told that you're going to get this this new project and you and if you only support it, you know, if you go out and vote for whoever's proposing it or the bonds or whatever it may be, and then it doesn't happen, you start to lose any kind of faith in in the system, that, that, it, that, that the system's going to improve it and that there may not be any point in having pride or expecting anything better in the future. And so that's why we've got to band together and and just figure it out anyways as local entrepreneurs and local community members. You do that. You lead by example, uh, Robert Thompson. I, I really admire your leadership, your commitment, your scholarship, frankly, on your books. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to have you back in the not too distant future because uh, there are actually several other books that uh, we just run out of time. I really just admire um, what you've done for your community and appreciate your time today. Well, I certainly appreciate it, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. Thanks so much. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development at the West Edge Factory in Huntington, West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org, to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org 
and subscribe to our newsletter for up-to-date information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn by searching for Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.